Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and at IASLC.org in the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Stephen Liu. This is Dr. Stephen Liu, medical oncologist from Georgetown University. I am very excited about today's episode where we'll discuss liquid biopsy and lung cancer. We know that biomarker testing is central to the proper classification and more to the point, the proper treatment of non-small cell lung cancer. Over the past few years, there have been critical scientific advances that have improved our ability to detect these biomarkers reliably and quickly. Next generation sequencing has become faster and better with improvement in both sensitivity and specificity. Importantly, we have seen liquid biopsy play an increasingly important clinical role. To learn more about what liquid biopsies are and how to best use them today and in the future, I am joined by three world-renowned experts on liquid biopsy. No room for hyperbole here. I know that you all know our three guests. Uh, We'll start with Dr. David Gandera, a professor of medicine, director of thoracic oncology at the University of California, Davis. He is a true luminary in the field with leadership roles in the NCI cooperative groups, famously including SWOG. He is a past president of ISLC, a tireless translational and clinical researcher responsible for countless advances in lung cancer care, and a mentor and teacher to quite literally hundreds of lung cancer researchers, including several on this episode. Of note, he's currently the chief medical officer for the International Society of Liquid Biopsy. David, thank you for joining us today. David, my pleasure. Thank you. We also have Dr. Charu Agarwal, the Leslie M. Heisler Associate Professor for Lung Cancer Excellence at the University of Pennsylvania. She is an established and well-respected authority in all aspects of lung cancer care, from immunotherapy to targeted therapy, and more recently, one of the few thoracic experts in cellular therapy. She's a prolific clinical investigator and has authored some of the more important and most frequently cited studies on liquid biopsy and early adopter. Charu, thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. And our final guest, Dr. Christian Rolfo, Professor of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York City and the Associate Director for Clinical Researcher in the Center for Thoracic Oncology at the Tisch Cancer Institute. He's a globally recognized expert in drug development with prominent appointments in Argentina, Belgium, and now thankfully the US. He was a critical investigator on several registrational studies for targeted therapy in non-small cell lung cancer. And he is currently the president of the International Society of Liquid Biopsy. Christian, so glad you could join us. Thank you, Stephen. It's a pleasure to be here with these colleagues. Yeah, I mean, this is, to me, the perfect panel for this topic. The three of you are all authors on the ISLC consensus statement on liquid biopsy. But before we get into some of those details, I think we should start with the basics. Christian, can you just tell us in general terms, what is a liquid biopsy? Yeah, it is a, a very broad uh, question, but it's a, a perfect question to start. So I can define the liquid biopsy as the, the study or the analysis of the different fluids that we have access, and that is including not only blood, but also urine, CSF, other fluids in the body that we can analyze and take information. Uh, when we are taking information there in the liquid biopsy, we are not only referring to the DNA, but also other members of the liquid biopsy family as platelets, CTCs, exosomes, and so on. So there are a bunch of opportunities for to study and analyze the, the fluids, and this is what we will talk today. You know, Charo, I hear a lot of terms here, and I don't want to get too deep into the semantics, but is there any difference between 
terms like cell-free DNA and circulating tumor DNA? What are we talking about? I'm glad you bring this up because, you know, we, we hear about these terms being used interchangeably quite a lot. And I think what we are interested in, the application of liquid biopsy in lung cancer, is really in the realm of circulating tumor DNA, which is the fraction of cell-free DNA, which is purely tumor-derived. And I do want to mention that, you know, this should not be confused with terms such as circulating tumor cells or other entities which may be found in the plasma. For the purposes of, of liquid biopsy in lung cancer, I think right now the most convincing evidence is in the application of circulating tumor DNA, which is derived or circulating pieces of DNA that are shared from the tumor itself. Yeah, that's, that's an important point. You know, it's just it's more than just a blood test and they, they mean different things. So let's get into a little more of the science. David, let's go into the, some of the specifics. When a physician sends a liquid biopsy, he's going to draw some tubes of blood. Those tubes are either processed at that hospital or frequently mailed to a commercial laboratory. And what happens to that blood next? Well, Stephen, I think this is a question that many oncologists wonder about because it's like you draw the tube of blood, it falls into a black hole, and then a week or two later comes out of the black hole and you have your report. But in reality, every one of these assays, whether it's a local assay or a commercial assay, it has its own very specific computational algorithm. And this includes everything from how you draw the blood, how you process the blood, how you centrifuge it. That's all done locally. And then if it's either in-house or it's sent off, it arrives at that facility. And there it goes through a series of steps. And most people just focus on the sequencing of the circulating tumor DNA. But there are many other aspects, quality checks, checking the tumor specimen for uh, anything that could be, let's say, a germline abnormality or what we call CHIP. That would be clonal hematopoiesis. These are things, uh, mutations that are found in white blood cells. And all the assays that are available have filtering algorithms and other methods of handling those. So once the variants are identified, they are classified as either functional or variants of unknown significance. And then the real work begins. You'd think that's the end. But then all the annotation uh, that comes back in a report, and this is true, I know, for almost all the assays out there, the practicing oncology oncologist needs to know the implications. In other words, is this something where there's an act active therapy? Is this something where there's an FDA-approved therapy? Is this something where there are clinical trials? So for the most part, the assays report all of this information. They also have scientists that are available. And again, I'm talking about the commercial assays, you know, so that if you have a question, and I do this sometimes myself, I either call them or send a uh, email and say, well, what about this rare EGFR mutation? Are we sure it's not functional? So it's quite a process, but typically in a week or two, at most, a circulating tumor DNA analysis will be back. And I think later, maybe we'll talk a little bit about tissue and when you would do one versus the other. Yeah, let's, let's get into clinical use here. You know, we, we send off this blood, we get back a report, we have to interpret that. Christian, how are we using liquid biopsy in the management of lung cancer today? Yeah, that's a very good question. In 2018, when we published the liquid biopsy statement paper from ILCLC, we include liquid biopsy 
as a sequential opportunity after tissue was not able to to determine the next generation sequencing with the next generation sequencing, the profiling, molecular profiling of the patient. And then we, we say in patients that have TKIs, we can go from there for have an idea which kind of mechanism of resistance is involved when the patient is progressing. Nowadays, we are trying to incorporate liquid biopsy in different other opportunities. We are talking right now about complementary approach that is tissue and liquid. We are also using the blood-first approach because it's what is happening in reality. We are taking the blood, like uh, David was explaining before, and we send the tissue at the same time, but we receive actually the liquid biopsy before, and we are treating patients from the very beginning. And then there is another opportunity that is the monitoring. So we are following the patients in response, specifically patients with targeted therapies, but also there are some research going on for an application in immunotherapy. So I would say to summarize, we are using liquid biopsy today as a first approach to take a whole picture together with liquid biopsy, with tissue biopsy of the molecular profiling of the patient and also monitoring, but also identify mechanisms of resistance that we can continue to tailor the treatment of these patients over the time. Now, for, for years, we've been preaching the importance, the value of biomarker testing. But historically, we've been talking about tissue, tissue-based testing, tissue-based multiplex testing, next-generation sequencing. Charu, does liquid biopsy replace tissue biopsy? Does it complement? Do these coexist? Stephen, that's such a great question. We've come such a long way in the incorporation of liquid biopsies into our diagnostic paradigm. You know, I think four or five years ago, this was purely experimental, and today we have completely integrated it into our diagnostic workflow. Does it replace tissue biopsy? I would say probably not, but we know that it's a very good complementary mechanism to detect actionable mutations and deliver personalized therapy, be it targeted therapy or immunotherapy. We know that tissue is great, but it's not perfect. We know that the QNS rates with tissue are pretty high. Across the literature, we find that about 20 to 30% of the times uh, tissue just isn't enough. Now, this could be because tumor sample is necrotic, or it could be that the biopsy sample is just too small. And oftentimes, we've also found that liquid biopsies are just faster. They have a quicker turnaround time, facilitating the delivery of therapy much faster and in a quicker fashion. I will say that there are several different approaches that have been outlined, including a complementary approach first or a plasma first approach first. But we must recognize that liquid biopsy does have some drawbacks as well. And, you know, there are instances where we just cannot find a mutation in liquid biopsy for one reason or the other, which we, we will probably explore later in this podcast. So I would say that there is a lot of evidence uh, suggesting that complementary testing with both tissue and plasma uh, should be adopted for at least patients that have newly diagnosed non-squamous metastatic non-small cell lung cancer. Yeah, I think that the timing aspect is so important. I think we've all in years past been in this situation where we're waiting, waiting, waiting for tissue results and we get back insufficient tissue or you know inadequate material for proper testing. And it's just such heartbreak and, and it really puts us behind the eight ball there. So maybe I'll just go around the room here and, and kind of put you on the spot if you don't mind. New patient seeing you today. They had their biopsy yesterday. 
It's being sent for NGS. That's in the works. Are you going to send liquid biopsy right now or are you going to wait? Charlie, what do you think? Yeah, so my practice is to send off plasma testing as soon as I see them, even though tissue testing is in progress. And in fact, at our institution, tissue sequencing is often in progress even before they see me. But based upon our own data, as well as others, demonstrating that the QNS rate may be as high as 20 to 30%, I always find that I'm safer, able to better discover molecular alterations if I cover myself by sending plasma testing. Based on your data, I also send it right away. (laughs) Christian, what about you? Yeah, I'm doing actually the same. I think the complementary approach is is a complete picture opportunity that we will have to understand uh, the clonal evolution of the disease. I always explain to my patients like a piece of cake. So if we are taking a biopsy, we only can tell about the flavor of this piece of cake when we have in front of us. But if we are seeing the complete cake, we can able to, to see also what is happening in the other clones. And that has happened actually in some patients that we have paradoxal or, or results that we have tissue positive and liquid biopsy negative or the contrary way in some cases. So it's important that we complement both technologies. Obviously, here we can discuss about the reimbursement system and what is happening in other countries. But I think in the ideal scenario, that will be the most beautiful opportunity for our patients. David, do you agree? Do you send these up front? Well, I think first before I answer, I have to say I love Christian's analogy to a cake. (laughs) And and I'll use that in my response because I'll say, in some cases, the cake is only half-baked. And what I mean by this, as Christian uh, said, that there will be tissue heterogeneity. This is most common, of course, in acquired resistance situation. But um, a lot of studies now show it is also present sometimes the time of diagnosis. So I agree with both my colleagues. I send the plasma as soon as I can. And the tissue then can be quite complementary. We haven't brought this up yet, but some patients are what we refer to as non-shedders. Now, that tends to be patients with a low volume of disease or earlier stage. But what it means is that they are not shedding enough of the tumor DNA into their blood to be picked up on an assay. This was much more common in the past than it is today, but we still see it. So, you know, that being said, I I think the two platforms are complementary. There is always an issue about reimbursement, but I've been surprised within the last year uh, that has become, I think, uh, much more easy. And maybe it's in part due to our consensus uh, paper. I think it is. And you know, the three of you are obviously very experienced with this platform, but there are many of our listeners, many practitioners out there that have less experience. So David, I want to hone in on one of the things you just said there. In terms of sensitivity and specificity, one of the areas where I see liquid biopsy being maybe misinterpreted are on negative results. Can you comment a little more on that? Well, I think the first thing to say, Stephen, is that there are many platforms, even for next-generation sequencing liquid biopsy, They're not all used in the same space. So we have platforms that are entirely designed for patients with advanced stage disease, where specificity and sensitivity are really quite good. They're at least 95%. But there are some others that are going into what Chowry mentioned is currently research, could be monitoring, could be MRD, which we'll talk about later, where the sensitivity has to be a lot greater. 
So no. So first, for advanced stage disease, we're there with liquid biopsy. And I think the key for some practitioners is to realize you can't take it out of clinical context. And I'll just very quickly say a common referral to me or a call from an oncologist says, you know, I just did a CT DNA analysis and it was totally worthless. I know this patient has an EGFR-XM19 mutation in their cancer from tissue and they didn't find it in the blood. And so I say, well, how's the patient doing? Are they on an EGFR-TKI? And they say, yes. They say, as a matter of fact, they're in a complete remission. And I say, that's the reason that the CT DNA is negative. You have eliminated that mutation from the blood. That is a fantastic prognostic factor. Excellent. A great point. Uh, Christian, when we look at these reports, um, we'll see the mutation, the area of the gene, the specific mutation. And a lot of times we're given something called variant allelic fraction, which is going to be reported as a number. Is this something that you can follow like a tumor marker? What's the value of this number? Yeah, that's a very good question because it's actually one of the most important confusions that we, we see in some of the reports where the interpretations come. So the variant of allelic fraction is the quantity of DNA that is present in the sample. And that could be interpreted in, in different ways. So the first one, exception that I would like to touch here is the, the number that we have, the percentage that we see on when we have, for example, a driver and it's 1% or, or 0.5%. This doesn't mean that the patient will not respond to treatment. So that is only the, telling us the quantity of DNA that is present in this sample for this specific mutation. And we have several data, including our own research and paper, our paper also that Charu was publishing about the variance of allelic fraction very low that were responding very well to treatment. This is the first thing. The second thing is the, that we can use this allelic fraction variation as a tool to predict the progression-free survival in some patients or outcomes, we will say, going for the dynamics. So seeing what happened in this clearance or, or not, if it's detectable or not after a period of treatment. And there are several studies that demonstrate that after six or eight weeks of treatment, having this clearance of the mutations are a surrogate of progression-free survival. And there are actually some vendors that are proposing a, a second time point in the, in the remodeling system for the first, first time point for the patients. And the third one exception is that we can use also the allelic fraction variation in the differences when we have co-drivers uh, to understand a little bit better what is the clonal evolution of these tumors and following during the, during the, the treatment monitoring patients. A lot of potential uses for, for this platform. You know, Charo, this is clearly relevant for targeted therapy. As Christian was outlining, and as you've discussed, certainly a diagnosis and I think at resistance. Do you see any utility for this kind of test with respect to immunotherapy? I think the implications of liquid biopsy as a biomarker for immunotherapy are are purely research-based right now, but I think the application can be in a variety of ways. Firstly, I think, you know, if we don't find an actionable mutation, we know that that patient may benefit from immunotherapy. So there is that direct application, but we also know that there are certain emerging mutations, such as STK11, KEEP, etc., which may be found in liquid biopsy and may determine response to immunotherapy 
And I think in the future, we will be looking at composite biomarkers incorporating these negative predictor mutations to identify patients that may not respond well to immunotherapy. Having said that, you know, we have, we and others have looked at plasma TMB using, uh, you know, ctDNA, assessing that to look at plasma-based tumor mutational burden and how that may be used as a biomarker for response to just, not just immunomonotherapy, but also chemoimmunotherapy. And then finally, I think there is a lot of interest in looking at serial monitoring of ctDNA over time and using that as a potential biomarker of response. Can we really identify patients that are not destined to have a good or sustained response to immunotherapy? I think this is where the future will be. You know, could we identify patients at week three or, you know, week six, maybe prior to their first scan? and predict whether or not they may have progression prior to the radiographic response and perhaps escalate therapy. And conversely, in patients who are more likely to have a response, maybe potentially de-escalate therapy and thereby preventing toxicity from chemotherapy. There are some commercial assays already available that look at more of a personalized ctDNA approach using a bespoke ctDNA panel, evaluating the response to immunotherapy. I think these um, are smaller panels and do require tissue assessment so that the ctDNA response can be assessed. But I think in the future, we will be looking at plasma-only approaches where we can collect samples at baseline and maybe an early time point, like three weeks or six weeks, and really assess patients that may respond best. So I think that, you know, ctDNA assessment is here to stay, not just for targeted therapy, but also in various ways, as we have discussed for immunotherapy and applications in terms of escalation or de-escalation of therapy. Yeah, I think that's, that's really exciting. You know, uh, in, in our clinics, we do a blood test when patients are starting their treatment. And, you know, very frequently patients will ask me, you know, what does the blood test show with regard to the treatment? Is, is it working? And I have to sort of explain it. The blood test doesn't really tell me that. The blood test is more to monitor for toxicity, but maybe it should be telling us that. And so, you know, what you were describing is, you know, maybe an advantage over CT scans. Sometimes CT scans are a little difficult to interpret with immunotherapy. Sometimes they take a little while to really show their true colors. There's cost, there's radiation exposure. So you think that maybe in the future, we could be using liquid biopsy to gauge response and maybe pivot if the response isn't optimal? Is, is that what you're, you're thinking might happen in the future? Absolutely. And even though pseudoprogression doesn't occur that frequently, we do have patient scenarios where, you know, the patient looks well, but then we see radiographic evidence of progression. And usually we are on the side of, you know, clinical intuition. But wouldn't it be great if we had another biomarker, maybe it's ctDNA, where we can assess the change of ctDNA over time to really guide us, you know, if the ctDNA is increasing, as uh, Christian mentioned, if the allelic fraction is actually increasing and we see radiographic progression, maybe it is true progression and not just pseudoprogression. So I do think that in the future, we will be including ctDNA monitoring as a response biomarker. I mean, I love that aspect of it, right? Because the half-life of nucleic acid is pretty short. So 
I, I think its role as a biomarker there is is fascinating. And we want sort of an early indication when something's going wrong or when something's going right. And you know, I think, David, this makes me think of an earlier stage of lung cancer. You know, we're seeing targeted therapy and immunotherapy playing a role in earlier stage lung cancer. And we often hear about minimal residual disease a lot of times in the context of surgery, but also other cancers. Is that something we can define by liquid biopsy? Well, it is. As I said earlier, the sensitivity for a test that's used for MRD for ctDNA has to be greater. We have now have a variety of tests designed specifically for that purpose. But I think first, Stephen, just defining minimal residual disease in my terminology, this means in an early stage cancer patient who has had definitive therapy, typically surgery, and then is there evidence of circulating tumor DNA left behind at some early point, let's say a month after surgery. And the reason I say that is some people use the term MRD for what Charu was talking about in Christian, that is monitoring. That's not the way I use that definition. But it is quite clear in now nine different tumor types that the presence of circulating tumor DNA after surgery is highly prognostic. In other words, patients do worse, as you would expect, if there is still some micrometastasis there that is shedding DNA from their tumor into their blood. And as Charlie mentioned, these assays could either be tissue informed. That requires that you look at the mutations in the, the tumor biopsy or surgery specimen, and then you mimic these in your assay for ctDNA. Alternatively, you can use what's called a tissue naive approach. I prefer if the assay is conducted correctly that it be called plasma-informed. And we published on this uh, last year using an assay where we use the baseline plasma ctDNA to determine which mutations to follow over time. So with that being said, we have a lot of studies in early stage non-functional lung cancer where MRD is proving to be pivotal. We're waiting for the results, for example, from the ADORA trial of adjuvant osmeritinib. If patients had negative ctDNA in that trial, did they mean they were already cured with surgery or maybe with chemotherapy? The Empower 010 has already been presented for adjuvant atezolizumab. And I don't know about uh, our other faculty today and you also, we might get your comments. But when I saw those data, I thought it was a mixed picture. Yes, patients did better on immunotherapy if they had positive ctDNA, that is positive MRD. But there were also lots of patients who relapsed, even if the ctDNA was negative. And again, they did better on atezolizumab. So that assay at that time point did not, for me, allow us to use it as a selection factor for who should get adjuvant immunotherapy. And of course, there's lots of work being done in other cancer types. Some of these, even ahead of non-small cell lung cancer, for instance, colorectal cancer, using MRD to escalate or de-escalate adjuvant therapy. I think that's a really promising use. We use adjuvant therapy sort of blindly, right? Because we know that some people will not be cured after definitive therapy, that there are micrometastases. And what you're kind of describing, David, is, is detection of micrometastases. And I think that if we can get the assays sensitive enough, 
you know, Charu, do you, do you agree? You think this is the, the future of, of adjuvant therapy, deliver it where it's needed? Yeah, I would agree with what David said. And Christian, you think that there's a lot of promise there in targeted therapy and immunotherapy? Yeah, I think also we need to select the patients. I, I completely agree with David say, and also we, we have with the liquid biopsy the opportunity to select patients that they don't need really actually, for example, consolidation in stage three. So patients that could be completely cured with chemo radiation and free. And that was an analysis that was uh, done by Maximilian Dean in, in one of the retrospective studies demonstrated that some patients are going through some toxicities when they have completely negative ctDNA in the in the analysis. So obviously this has opened the door for applications and future applications and now we are concentrated in minimal residual disease but also in early detection that there are a lot of things to do there as well. So it's a brilliant future for liquid biopsy. We're talking about guiding therapy but also telling us when we need therapy and maybe when we don't need therapy. I think that's a really important point, but just to echo what David had mentioned early on, you know, in the adjuvant studies with the tezolizumab, not really quite ready for clinical use. So I, I would encourage my listeners, you know, our listeners, not to not to integrate this into their practice just yet, but to stay tuned. Charlie, let's talk about some of the practical issues you've been using liquid biopsy now for years. Can you talk about cost? Are these tests expensive? Are they covered by insurance? Absolutely, and this is an issue that comes up frequently. You know, we have seen decline in the cost of next generation sequencing panels, be it tissue based or plasma based in general over time. You know, as our technology gets better and better, we are seeing that the costs are going down. And many argue that adding liquid biopsy to tissue sequencing may overall increase cost. But, you know, in fact, research has shown that adding liquid biopsy may actually reduce costs overall. Uh, this was a study that was presented at WCLC in 2021. This was called the value study that was looking at the economic value of liquid biopsy for advanced non-small cell lung cancer. And this is a Canadian study, and they showed that adding liquid biopsy can actually reduce overall cost by saving the inadvertent costs uh, from mortality and morbidity of using inappropriate treatments such as chemoimmunotherapy. So we have to recognize that there are costs associated with an inappropriate therapy such as immunotherapy, which is much more costly than the cost of an NGS panel alone. Uh, practically speaking, I have not run into issues with reimbursement for my patients that routinely get complementary tissue and plasma sequencing. I have never had to appeal such a decision or to perform complementary tests. And I think that overall, it's a huge benefit to be able to get the molecular data in front of us prior to starting first-line therapy. That's a good way to look at cost is the alternative. And if you miss an actionable target, then you deliver the wrong therapy. And as you mentioned, that those are very expensive drugs as well. And they're also, you know, I think you're alluding to non-financial costs, you know, the delays in receiving the right treatment, toxicity maybe of getting the treatment in the wrong sequence. So uh, these are really great points. But I think the three of us right now are practicing in the US where we, we do have access to a lot of resources that others may not. Uh, Christian, to your knowledge, is the availability and use of liquid biopsy the same in other parts of the world? Unfortunately not. So we are living here in a very nice uh, situation, I think, because we have access, like you say, to all these technologies 
approved by FDA and also reimbursed. Uh, but in other regions of the world, they don't, they, are, they don't have all this access. And depends, obviously, in different regions, as an international society of liquid biopsy was working with different people around the world, and there is completely different realities. In Europe, for example, majority of the centers are trying to get their own technology. So that is also requiring a lot of quality controls, requiring a lot of updates in the technologies. When we are thinking, for example, to new fusions or new alterations that we want to detect, every change in the panel needs to be updated and need to be also certified by quality control. So that is one of the aspects. There are other regions of the world that we have using, for example, exosomes or microRNAs, and that is not even validated. And there are companies that are selling that, actually. So we need to be very careful. We are in an area that there is a lack of, uh, I will say, quality frame or an actually a legal aspect of the application of this. So there is still a lot of things to do around the world and obviously have access and panels that are dedicated also to, to different situations. For example, in Latin America, we cannot propose in some countries due to the access to the technology panels of 300 genes. We need to go for panels that have the minimal requirements, for example, in cancer, the eight guidelines recommended biomarkers that they have access to the drugs because otherwise it's completely useless to have this information for patients if we cannot apply. So evaluating, and that is something that we, we are always discussing with companies from the United States that they are going to different markets in the, in the world, applying the same that we have here in the United States is not really the solution for, for these people that they cannot affront the, economically all this technology. And these are important points. It must be very frustrating in some areas, hopefully something we can improve on. David, let me ask a question here. One of the, the concerns I get from some colleagues and, and sort of referring doctors is they're a little intimidated by the reports. They send off a blood specimen, they get this paper, it's a lot of letters and numbers on there. Maybe they're not familiar with all those. What advice would you have for, for that practitioner? You mentioned that you could always call the company directly. Is that right? Well, yes. And, and again, I do this on occasion, uh, even though I see these reports all the time, because I need some additional information. And sometimes it's because you don't find much on that ctDNA analysis. And it may be just because that patient was what we call a non-shedder. But again, just going back to the report itself, you know, all of these assays that are in use, as long as it's a good test, they've been analytically validated, and then they've been clinically validated. So you want to make sure that you understand what's functional and what's not functional, so-called variant of unknown significance. And the assays in general are going to spell that out. You also want to be able in blood to look at that level, the variant allele frequency. And if you then repeat it at some time to see, does it change? Does it go up? Does it go down? Again, depending on the clinical situation. But importantly, you also want to look at the co-mutations. And some people will say, well, I didn't find anything useful. So I'll just give you an example here. I had a patient referred to me last week with an EGFR mutated lung cancer, and they now had progressive disease after treatment with osimertinib, and circulating tumor DNA was repeated, and they sent me the report, and I saw that the EGFR mutation was still there. It was exon 19, but it was a lower variant frequency, but what had happened in the meantime? 
is the patient had very low levels of P53 and RB mutation in the blood at initial diagnosis, those had markedly increased. So everybody on this call knows what that means. This is a patient very likely who has transformed in the small cell lung cancer. And that P53 and RB, although they're not important for us therapeutically, you know, at the moment, they are telltale signs in blood. So we typically say you need a biopsy to prove it's small cell, and that's still true. But, you know, this was pretty telling. So there are lots of things out of the assay uh, that I can get, you know, besides those functional abnormalities. These are very versatile, very helpful tools, and, and hopefully they'll continue to make their way into all of our practices. Uh, David, let me ask you to look into your crystal ball there. Where's the field going to be in five years? Well, so Stephen, I think I don't have a crystal ball. I hope you do. <laughs> but, but, you know, that being said, obviously things are going to change. And my colleagues have already talked about several of these. We're going to be broadening where we use liquid biopsy. And now I'm just talking about non-small cell lung cancer. We talk about the continuum of cancer care. That means, you know, early diagnosis. Many, many studies ongoing now to see if liquid biopsy is sensitive enough and specific enough that it can complement or perhaps even partially replace CT scan screening and the early detection of non-small cell lung cancer. And again, those sorts of trials are ongoing. They're further ahead in colorectal cancer, for example. But then, you know, we've talked about the MRD space. We've also emphasized circulating tumor DNA, but several of those assays incorporate epigenetic changes. So again, not just the DNA, but in five years, we're, as Christian said, we're going to be using other components that can be found in the blood. One thing in particular, I think, is since we use circulating tumor DNA mostly in the stage four, and particularly in patients with oncogene-driven cancers, there's evidence coming out that also what happens at the time of progressive disease that can be detected in the blood is incredibly important. And again, I'll just give an analogy. A patient that I recently saw who had been on an ALK inhibitor since diagnosis now had progressive disease. And if you present that scenario to practicing oncologists, a lot of people will just say, I'm going to pick the next best ALK inhibitor based on the literature. And that's an empiric approach. The alternative is to do ctDNA and see if you can detect a secondary resistance ALK mutation versus a bypass mechanism. One recent study with lorlatinib said if the patient had failed another ALK inhibitor, you're primed to give them lorlatinib. If you do ctDNA and you find a secondary ALK mutation, the response rate was 79%, and it was about 29%. If there was a bypass mechanism instead, you know, that makes sense, but a lot of people aren't doing that. That's going to become standard of care, I think. Using these tests to inform treatment yes. rather than, than really just sort of guessing. I completely agree. Charo, as we mentioned at the top, the three of you, all three guests, are all authors on the recent ISLC consensus statement on liquid biopsy. Could you briefly summarize that for us? Absolutely. So as Christian mentioned, the recent liquid biopsy consensus statement is an update to the older consensus statement from 2018. 
And in the short period of three years, there has been tremendous change in the availability and the application of liquid biopsies. So the consensus statement is really a way to deliver recommendations from ISLAC to the community on use of plasma biopsies, either at the initial diagnosis, uh, how to integrate plasma biopsies or liquid biopsies into the diagnostic management, where the consensus statement usually regards liquid biopsy as a complementary approach to tissue testing, which is still considered the gold standard, and how to integrate liquid biopsy in the resistance setting, often in the setting of oncogene-addicted tumors, where we all think that a plasma-first approach is reasonable, as David was just pointing out, really to select treatment options for patients that may be progressing on a certain TKI. The paper does not discard the use of tissue biopsies in this setting, that is in the resistance setting, but really offers an opportunity to minimally to you know assess the tumor microenvironment or the resistance profile in a minimally invasive setting. It also highlights the use of liquid biopsies in other settings as we've discussed, maybe monitoring of response to certain therapies, be it TKIs or immunotherapy in the metastatic setting, and also the future application of MRD. Um, so it's a pretty broad paper, but it talks about both practical considerations that we can utilize today, as well as future applications of liquid biopsy. And I'm sure there will be future iterations as the technology advances and our understanding of the biology improves. I think I'd encourage everyone to, to take a look at that. I think it's a very forward-facing statement. Christian, you're currently the president of the International Society for Liquid Biopsy. Before we close this episode, can you tell us a little more about the ISLB? Yeah, thank you for the opportunity, Stephen. This is an, uh, it's a young society that was born by the necessity to congregate all the people that is work in the area of liquid biopsy. And I'm talking about researchers, physicians. We have also advocacy parts or groups that are working with us. But also including the opportunity to companies to find the space to discuss about liquid biopsy in a transparent way. So the, our idea is to bring education about liquid biopsy around the world. We are doing our annual meeting that is completely free for our members. And we have also a series of webinars and currently, we are also preparing and a very interesting tool that will be the education with a certification of liquid biopsy um, expert over one year, taking contact with companies, with patients, with technology. So it will be a very comprehensive opportunity for educate and increase the, the possibility to apply liquid biopsy around the world. So uh, we have the fortune to have also David de Gandara as our CMO. And, and a lot of people that is working in this society, and, and I profit the opportunity to ask to or to invite our uh, listeners to join us in this society because we need to continue to develop this, this research. Yeah, I love the uh, educational mission there and uh, looking forward to a lot of things from ISLB. This has been a, a great topic, and it's really striking how far the fields come in such a short period of time. But speaking of short periods of time, we are at the end of ours. I want to be respectful. I know the three of you have a very busy schedule. So Christian, it's been really great talking to you. Thank you, Steve. And, and it was a pleasure to, to share this space with two great colleagues and friends, uh, Charo and, and David. And thank you for the opportunity to discuss about this interesting passion that we share here. Oh, thank you. Good, good words there. Charu, great insights. Always a pleasure. 
Thank you so much for having me. This was terrific. David, I appreciate you taking the time to join us. Absolutely. My pleasure, Stephen. Thank you. And thank ISLC. And thanks to everyone there for listening to Lung Cancer Considered, the official ISLC podcast. We hope that you'll tune in regularly to give us a listen. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, www.iaslc.org, in our newsroom or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues. 